Chemical City Double Reeds is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reeds, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation or schedule challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set yourself up for success and sign up for their newsletter. Thank you for your support, Ugly Duckling Oboes. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Hello, Galit. How are you? Hello, Jackie. I'm good. Good. I'm enjoying my hair grow out for the first time. It's the longest it's been since I've known you. Yeah, this is like Galit from 2006. Blast from the past. Really weird. (laughs) I haven't gotten a haircut since quarantine. Really? Well, and even before then. So I think it's, it's coming up on a full calendar year. Wow. I'm just letting it go. You got to do it. <laughs> I FaceTimed with my best friend and she's like, oh my God, it's like we're back in grad school. And I was like, no. That's hilarious. <laughs> um, but this dish is not about my hair, sadly. It is about double read methods. Back when we asked for y'all's help for things to talk about. Mm-hmm. You asked us to talk about teaching double read methods, and that was a fantastic topic for a dish. So, Jackie, I'd love to jump in by asking you your perspective on teaching double read methods. Well, you know, I think it's changed over time. Uh, I think I was maybe a little idealistic when I started teaching it and had some maybe like standards of things I expected <laughs> these individuals to be able to do. Or was That's such a, an interesting concept in 2020. I know. <laughs> uh, but over time, I've kind of thought about like, tried to be really pragmatic about what do they really need? Mm-hmm. And then also when they're in the field teaching, how are they likely to approach finding what they need? And I've come to the conclusion that probably most people, when they need to figure out something, Google. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what I do. And so I've been um, teaching my course, but also pointing them toward resources on the internet that I would want them to listen to for sure. Like, okay, this is something that is liable to come up via Google. And this is something you should feel confident listening to. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, the three really big ones are um, Kristen Wolf Jensen's Music in the Bassoon, which is essentially like 
an online method book, but it mm -hmm. also has videos and the fingering charts. And it's just basically like going from opening the case to um, several years into playing, I oh, think. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. And it's taught by Kristen. And of course, she's fantastic. And there's demos and everything. Um, I love that resource. I definitely point my students toward that. Um, Aaron Off's videos mm -hmm. are so useful and engaging. And she talks a lot about stuff they'll need. Like um, she has several videos on purchasing a bassoon for $5,000 or less, one mm -hmm. on new, one on used. And it's like, oh man, that's a fantastic resource for when mm -hmm. they're, you know, going through that type of thing. Yeah. And then also um, we all know the, the fingering charts in those meth the band methods they oh, get <laughs> and it's just like whoa what is happening here like have you ever met a bassoonist like have you ever breathed in the same room as a bassoonist <laughs> sorry um but dave wells on his website and everything i'm talking about i'll link to for sure but um dave wells on his website has a wealth of fantastic fingering charts mm. and he also divides them into like beginner or student intermediate and advanced mm. so you don't have to worry about handing your student a fingering chart that like goes up to a high f and what no microtonal fingering exactly and... <laughs> just like okay what do they need what should be in the back of their book is basically what the one i hand out is Ooh, that's great yeah it's it's really really, really good. So those are kind of the resources that I use to supplement. What type of stuff do you like to use in your classes? I really love your idea of using online resources. I haven't done that. Um, I actually haven't taught double read methods in quite a long time. But uh, one of the well, I guess in terms of resources, I'm always a little nervous with online resources that they won't stick around forever. Mm, that's a good point. Yeah. So I actually, when I taught it, I used the same book that I would use for a beginning oboist, which is the Geckler, the Kenneth Geckler book one. It's a beautiful book to start somebody on the oboe because it starts super easy and it starts in oboe-friendly keys like C major and G major because I am so over all of these poor little baby bows mm -hmm. coming in, having their band directors badgering them about only playing fork deaf. And it's like, okay, well, they have to do that because you're playing in B flat all the time and E flat all the time. Those are not <laughs> the most... <laughs> like ergonomic keys to start on and so there's this whole f problem um and so it starts them in keys that are actually a lot easier um in terms of the fingerings f major mm -hmm. g major c major d major um and uh it's it's got really short little concise exercises in there there's a few duets every once in a while i i think it's a really well done book and then in terms of fingering charts i point them to the martin shuring laminated fingering charts that you can purchase at any double read retailer they are fantastic um, they come laminated so you don't have to worry about crumpling it up at the bottom of the book bag it's just a beautifully done resource he has the um regular fingerings and then the trill fingerings one and i have both and i honestly still use them 
even though I'm a quote expert. <laughs> I'm like, what's that trill fingering again? <laughs> oh yeah, I'd like to meet the person who doesn't still need a trill fingering chart every I now know, and right? then. <laughs> well, and we should say, we probably should have said at the very beginning that, especially for our international listeners, that when we say double read tech, we're talking about mm. like a college course mm -hmm. that a music education major has to take people who don't actually play the oboe and bassoon to get a little bit of exposure to the mm -hmm. instruments. So these are beginners who will not go on to play. And it's always this wild ride. I think it's so funny, but I, to your point about B flat and E flat, and they're not great keys on the bassoon either. Another thing I do is kind of make sure to approach it as a class for my future colleagues. And oh, yeah. so I don't say you a lot. I say your students will. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. So this is, see, this is happening with Chloe and this will happen with your students too. Yep. What's likely causing that is blah. Mm -hmm. Um, or this is likely to be, you know, an issue for your students and always frame that. And so I'll literally tell them your double reads will start in B flat and they might start off a little bit slower because, you know, it's not the friendliest key or mm -hmm. it's not as friendly for us as it is for everyone else. And mm -hmm. you just need to know that it doesn't mean they're not working hard and it doesn't mean they're bad at what they do. It just means, you know, they might need some supplemental materials and to hook them up with a teacher if possible. Like oh, yeah. if, you know, the, the financial burden on the double read players families, I think is pretty significant. So, you know, there's also that economic element. So if you're lucky enough to teach in a band program that has the money to bring in a, a teacher to work with them uh -huh. every once in a while, um, if you have the budget to keep reads, uh -huh. um, just even store bought reads for them so that they don't constantly have to put in that kind of money all the time. That's really, really helpful. It just, it, it requires a little bit more oversight. Yep. <laughs> no, but you're right. And if we care, I mean, if we care as a field about, you know, if we're okay to say, you know, a lesson costs such and such and a read always costs such and such, then we're essentially saying we're okay if only one type of person plays exactly. the oboe or the bassoon. And so talking exactly. with future music educators about ways to mitigate cost or um, to strategize. Like one thing we do, you reminded me of, is we do a cost comparison between manufactured reads and handmade reads. It's actually not that much more expensive when you look at what they're charging for manufactured reads. Sometimes you're right though. You just have to be thoughtful enough to order them ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And like subscriptions series makes things more affordable. Buying things mm -hmm. in bulk can often mm -hmm. make things more affordable. Mm -hmm. um, but then we'll also do a sound comparison mm -hmm. and we'll do like, okay, play this handmade read, uh, now play this manufactured read and show them the difference and distinction and okay, which one would you have more fun playing? Uh, <laughs> which one would you have more fun listening to? Okay, so this yeah. is where it's worth it to go the extra mile and, and talk with your students. But yeah, I have yeah. Um, a couple private students online right now whose school districts are paying. Oh, that is so fantastic. That's a very lucky. That's very, very lucky. I know that a very small percentage of schools can do that. But mm -hmm. if you can, you should. 
Um, the other thing to consider is pointing them to, at least on the oboe side, I'm sure it's similar on the bassoon, but what instruments are worth the money? Like purchasing. Purchasing, exactly. Mm -hmm. If you have the budget to purchase one oboe, what kind of oboe should it be? And I always encourage school programs to purchase plastic oboes. Mm -hmm. with all the keys on them mm -hmm. so they don't have to it's not worth it to have those open hole b flat <laughs> beginner oboes where they have to squeeze their knees together to play mm -hmm. b flat um there are some fantastic instruments out, mm -hmm. out there plastic mm -hmm. i mean specifically fox and howarth have these incredible intermediate model instruments that are perfect durable, long lasting, require so little maintenance. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of maintenance, you can't just put them in a locker over the summer and call it a day. They have to be maintained every year. Right. The double reads. And talking to your students about yeah. that. What to allow your dad to do, what not to allow your dad to do to the instrument. <laughs> exactly. And I almost yeah. think in double read tech, those conversations are more important than mm -hmm can they play a high G or can oh, they yeah. play the equivalent of the all state audition repertoire? It's like, what are they going to need to teach our future generations? Mm -hmm. And also I always try to tell them also the good parts. Cause I feel like when you talk about all the like hurdles you have to cross with double reads, they're like, why would I do this? Exactly. I don't want to yeah. give the impression of this is not worth it. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to start double read players for the hassle. I could just have that another is flute. definitely the danger. Right. Yeah. And so you also want to talk about the benefits and what they can add to an ensemble mm -hmm. and all that type of stuff. So it's all on you, future band directors who are not listening. <laughs> Hey, oboists! Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes Ethelore of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox Products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.obochicago.com. For a credit of $100 towards shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. That's oboechicago.com. Janet Ingle loves the oboe. She has built her business on providing high-quality, handmade reads, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Janet Ingle Reads, you get prompt communication, reads or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome, and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that is right for you. Janet doesn't just do reads either. Look at JanetIngle.com for a selection of read cases, swabs, and tools, or for read-making videos, classes, and boot camps. Podcast listeners can use the code DISH for 10% off their first order at JanetIngle.com. We 
we are delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish, Yelena Dirks, Principal Oboe of the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. We love to get to know our guests by hearing about how they started on their musical path. How did you start to play the oboe? Well, I come from a musical family. So my, uh, my mom was, is or was an orchestral musician, my father as well, and even my grandmother. So um, it goes back several generations. And my parents really wanted a string quartet. So my mom was a violinist, my dad was a cellist, um, my brother also started, he's older than I am, he started on um, violin as well. And my parents said, give this girl a violin, we want a string quartet. And I, I never really liked it. I hated it, in fact. <laughs> and my uh, brother started taking piano lessons and I wanted to play the piano so badly. I think partly just because I wanted to do anything that my brother was doing. Um, but I, I begged to start piano lessons and they let me start piano lessons. And actually I still play piano to this day. But uh, I was about 10 years old and my mom was hosting a baby shower for uh, an oboist in the San Diego area. My mom was in the San Diego Symphony. And uh, she came to the baby shower and I thought, oh my goodness, this woman is really cool. And uh, she looked at me and she said, okay, now do this with your lips and do this with your lips. And then she said, you would make a perfect oboe player. And my 10-year-old self said, I would. <laughs> and I'm not even sure I really knew what an oboe was at the time. Um, I just begged my parents for weeks on end afterwards for an oboe. And uh, they finally said, okay, 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 you can have an oboe. And um, that was that. So they sort of got a quartet, but it was they the sort of different got, instrumentation. They got the Mozart oboe quartet <laughs> instead. <laughs> What was your impetus to want to pursue music as a career? You know, it had always just been such a part of my life. I don't remember a time when I thought anything other than I was headed for music. Um, I think partly just because my grandmother had been in the San Diego Symphony. My dad was in the San Diego Symphony for about two years. My mom was in the San Diego Symphony. And it was like, that's what I'm supposed to do. I mean, there were other things that I was interested in, but... Uh, it just seemed like that was the path. I don't, I don't know. I never really truly thought about it until much later in life. And my, I think my mom was a big inspiration as far as that goes. You know, she, um, she kept auditioning um, well into her 40s. And she won a job in the Chicago Symphony when she was 49. And so I was wow. in college. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I was in college thinking am I ever going to get an orchestra job? My oboe teacher at the time told me I would never get an orchestra job. And then all of a sudden my mom won a job in the Chicago symphony. And I was totally inspired by that. Just, I thought, this is amazing. I mean, if my mom can do it, maybe I actually can do it. Talk about modeling. I know, right? <laughs> there was never an excuse <laughs> after that to be like, I can't do this because I had this amazing example of my mom doing it. Could you walk us through your um, training and educational journey? Sure. So like I said, I, I was a pianist um, for most, you know, most of my, more of my life than uh, I've been an oboist. Um, so I, 
I started piano when I was maybe four or five and I, I just loved the piano. There was something, and I still do actually, there's, there's a part of me that adores playing the piano. And that's one of, been one of the fun things about the pandemic is that I've had time to really practice piano. Um, I think the, the whole aspect of being able to have the harmony along with the melody is something that is very integral to who I am as a musician and part of why I love playing the oboe in an orchestra so much because that that harmony is just so amazing um so i i actually went to school i went to st olaf college in minnesota um, as a piano major and i wanted to be a vocal coach i love art songs so i was very excited about singing so that's there's another aspect of what i think is amazing about playing the oboe and a wind instrument is this very vocal aspect of the instrument and uh I had this amazing piano teacher, I had a wonderful oboe teacher and my oboe teacher in my freshman year, she said, you know, Elena, why don't you take the concerto competition for the, the chamber orchestra and just see what happens? And I said, okay. <laughs> so I ended up winning the concerto competition um, and getting to play the first movement of the Marcello concerto with the chamber orchestra at St. Olaf. And after that, I said, well, I'm doing all this work on the oboe. Please, can I do a double major? And they said, oh, all right, fine, you can do a double major. So I ended up getting a double degree, a bachelor of performance in piano and in oboe. And um, that was just great for me. And then I went, I had this great experience playing Brahms one my, my senior year at St. Olaf. And I, it was with Eiji Owe, he came in, conducted the orchestra and I loved working with him and he was so encouraging to me and that just changed my life. And I said, I want to be an oboe player. <laughs> so I auditioned on oboe for a master's degree and I got into the University of Michigan and that was, it was an, a, a kind of a difficult experience actually because my teacher was pretty ill at the time and I had this fantastic piano teacher and so I was still taking piano lessons and my piano teacher at the time, this might sound familiar, said, Hey, Yelena, why don't you try auditioning for the concerto competition on the piano? Stop. <laughs> really? Really? And I said, um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I auditioned, I did not win, but I ended up having a pretty serious talk with him about adding a piano master's degree. And so I auditioned for the program and got in. So then I was doing a double master's degree and I, I added a year on this time because I just felt like I needed the time to divide up everything and uh, you know have a recital one year on one instrument and on another year on a different instrument. And so that gave me three years to just kind of do it all. And uh, I was running from <laughs> one thing on the oboe to you know I'd practice oboe all afternoon after I'd go to my classes and then I'd have dinner and then I'd go down to the school of music and I practiced piano until midnight and I'd repeat that over and over again um, it was really a, a quite a journey so after that I, I, um, I met Alex Klein after my mom had uh, won the audition in Chicago and he said oh hey come up on up to Chicago study with me audition for civic orchestra so I auditioned for civic I got in and that was an amazing experience for me getting into civic. And then I, I actually won a one year spot a couple of years later in Chicago as a, just a fill in on second oboe. 
And I think that's for me where the real training began. And uh, I learned so much from that and, and uh, learned that I really do love playing in an orchestra. And uh, yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of, <laughs> that's kind of how it goes. Um, and then I, you know, they had an opening for a second oboe about five years later and I didn't get the job. That was a devastating time for me. Um, I was so wrapped up in being an oboe player and being having my self-worth really defined by being in good enough to play with the Chicago Symphony, even though I wasn't in the orchestra. And you know how they say it's not really until you lose something that you realize how much you love it. And once I wasn't playing with the orchestra anymore, I realized that playing in an orchestra was exactly what I wanted to do. <laughs> And so I, I started taking auditions and it took a long time and I started kind of doing better and really studying about how, how to take auditions and learning how to take auditions. Um, and then finally I won St. Louis. I'm fascinated by what you said uh, when you talked about not winning the Chicago symphony job and feeling like you weren't good enough. Um, the idea of not good enough, I think, is an interesting one. And I wonder if your um, outlook on good enough has changed over your development in taking auditions and being in an orchestra. Well, yes and no, I would say. You know, I, I think always there's a little bit of that feeling that I'm, I'm not good enough. But I've learned to look at it like, like it's a positive thing that there's a balance to be had between thinking you're great at everything and everything's going to always go well and you don't have to work at all. And with knowing that you think in your heart that you want to do better. So there's, there's a growth involved that you need always to be growing. And so you have to feed that desire to grow and that that is what is truly important. So, so you don't want to go overboard and say, I'm not worthy. And you don't want to go overboard the other way and say, I'm perfect. But there's a path in the middle that says, I want to grow and learn and be better and better and better. So you um, talked about how you learned how to audition and studied how to be successful at auditions. And I would be interested in hearing uh, some of what you learned in that process and hearing about your uh, path leading to the St. Louis Symphony. So a lot of it comes from my mom. I mean, I was very fortunate in that, you know, I actually to this day, so my mom actually switched from violin to viola when I was maybe 10 or 15 years old, she started playing viola and she won the job in Chicago on viola. And to this day, I, I will sit in the orchestra and all of a sudden we'll get to some portion of some piece and I'll hear a viola excerpt and I'll go, oh my gosh, <laughs> that's what that is. <laughs> so I really grew up listening to my mom prepare for auditions. So a lot of, of the wisdom that I gained really came from her because I'd come and I'd come home unsuccessful from an audition and she'd say, okay, what can you learn from this? How did you prepare for this? Um, and the biggest, the biggest thing I learned was, was really the post audition. What can you learn? And instead of saying, oh gosh, you know, I was unlucky or I didn't play well or 
whatever it was, she said, how can you improve for the next time? So that each audition experience was, again, we're back to this, an opportunity for growth. So beyond that, I mean, just really like preparation stuff. So, you know, the, the fundamentals of intonation, tone quality, rhythm, technique, and really knowing how the orchestra excerpt fits into the orchestra. So she, you know, she really said those, those are the fundamentals. And then from there, you know, go play for people. She said, practice the audition, practice the audition. So go play for people, record it, play with the recordings. And that, so that was, that was a big step for me. And then the, the final steps kind of came when I started learning to let go. Um, so I, I got pretty depressed. I won't lie. I got pretty depressed in the whole audition circuit and I, I was starting to give up. In fact, St. Louis was the last audition I was ever going to take. Wow. My husband and I had decided that it was time to leave Chicago and he's a wine guy and he was really interested in going out West and uh, working in the winery. And I said, oh, Hey, that sounds great. I don't know what I'll do, but uh, I'm ready to, I'm ready to move on to something else because I don't feel like I'm growing here. Um, but before we go, let me just take this one more audition because this is my dream job. <laughs> and I, I just, I just need to take this one audition. And uh, lo and behold, I won that audition. But I think in part it was because I learned to let go and just say, it's going to be all right, no matter what. My life wasn't hinging anymore on whether or not I was winning an orchestra job. And I just went in there and I enjoyed playing the oboe. I enjoyed playing in the hall and I enjoyed the space. And I think that really came through in the audition. And I remember it just being the most fun day playing the oboe, which is kind of funny to say about an audition, but it was really fun. I was loopy. Every time I went out on stage, I was like, Woo, this is so fun. <laughs> I was going to ask about how the day went, but you basically covered it. Well, it was, it was long, but it was Again, it was fun. I mean, I, I went out on stage, I don't know, maybe the first time was probably about 10 or 11 in the morning. And I just remember I played and I pretended that I was playing with other people. And it just got to be more and more fun. And the longer it went on, the better I felt because I knew that they liked me. And by the, by the end, it was just... It was just great. And so I've, I've been a longtime admirer of Pete Bowman, who was my predecessor. I, I remember Grover Schultz, who was English horn player, when I first had contact with Chicago Symphony. And he uh, brought me a CD of Peter Bowman playing Barber Symphony Number no. 1. And I remember hearing that for the first time and thinking, that is the most beautiful oboe playing I've ever heard. <laughs> and so... We got to the audition you know, somewhere in the final round, I think, and, and there was Barber Symphony Number no. 1, and they had me sitting in Pete's chair at that time, and I was just like, oh my gosh, this is, this is an amazing experience, getting, getting to play this in his seat, and, you know, and, then, and then you just have to not think anymore after that, just think about the music. <laughs> it seems like the stars aligned, and like everything was like the planets were shining on you, you know? It felt like that like like that was the moment finally that was this was where my life was supposed to go 
Mm-hmm. What's it like to be in the job? It's wonderful. I, I often talk about how sitting in the center of the orchestra like we do is one of the most wonderful places to sit. And as a, you know, as a pianist, I have had some experience playing piano in an orchestra and I, I can't tell you how much I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and isn't that funny? you're off on the side? <laughs> because you're off on the side, you're way out in, in the heck and gone. And, and for me, that made all the difference in the world. So somehow sitting in the heart of the orchestra, our concert master talks about how often how the oboe is the heart of the orchestra. And um, I really feel like that. And that like, there's just so much heart and, and we have this wonderful quartet of principal winds that I just adore playing with. And for me, that chamber music experience of playing with people around me is, is just such a joy. You mentioned Grover Schultz and yeah. he's obviously a legacy in the oboe world. Can you tell us more about that studying with him and what he imparted to you? You know, he, he was such a wonderful spirit and he, he was so relaxed and laid back in a way that was just so healthy to be around. So, you know, we'd be sitting there in rehearsal and I'd be just completely stressed out and he'd be sitting there going, oh, you know, it's fine. And, you know, he'd say, you know, I remember this time when we were on tour and we were on the train and, and he'd tell me some funny story and he just had this wonderful way of, being and exuding calm and enjoyment. He really enjoyed what he was doing. Unusual for an oboist to exude calm. (laughs) Yeah, because we tend to be very stressed out about a lot of things, right? (laughs) And I, I think that's something I've really aspired to. I mean, why do we play if we don't enjoy it? And so the best moments are when I can finally just calm down and enjoy what I'm doing. And again, we get back to that in the audition. I enjoyed that day very much. And I think that that comes across to the audience as well. The other thing about Grover, he, he just had a way of making it work. And, and I remember that sort of blew my mind that he just did what he needed to do to make it work. It didn't have to be the prescribed this is how you play this. It was very much a flexible way of looking at it. Like, can you do it this way? Can you do it this way? Um, and just whatever made it work was all you needed to do. And I, <laughs> somehow that that blew my my student mind. I love that though. I love that, you know, it's not the same for all situations and for all people. Exactly, exactly. So- He was a wonderful influence that way. Very calming, joyful influence. You mentioned earlier that being a pianist informed your experience as an oboist, at least in terms of texture and experiencing harmony and how parts fit together. And I wonder, is there any other ways that being a pianist has informed or facilitated your growth as an oboist? I think really the harmony is the big thing, but, but um, it also, so I was privileged to work with Daniel Barenboim quite a bit in Chicago and, you know, he's a pianist and a conductor. And I think, you know, he, he would talk about color and melody um, and legato and all things that are just kind of really difficult to do on the piano. 
And in some ways, I think my oboe playing informed my piano playing Mm. in the ability to play a really true legato. But I think it worked both ways, you know, the the importance of a singing singing legato line um, became something that is more of a challenge on the and the piano in some ways, but also just something that I, I adore getting to do. <laughs> like there's just a joy in to me in making a, a long line come come out of come out of the texture. Earlier, uh, you had mentioned that you'd had a teacher early on that said, Yelena, you're never gonna get a job playing in an orchestra. And here you are playing in a full-time <laughs> orchestra. <laughs> This happens all the time. I hear about it all the time where, you know, negative comments like take root in the mind and become true and where they didn't necessarily have to be true in the first place. And I would imagine it's taken a lot to overcome that initial criticism. And I would love to know what you would say to young people who are getting that kind of feedback. I love that question. Um, it's near and dear to my heart, obviously. I mean, that was a central moment of my life to have somebody tell me that I would never win a job in an orchestra, that I would never be good enough. And I, I'm stubborn, first of all. I'm very stubborn and I don't like to be put in a box. And so really the best way to get me to do something is to tell me that I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't so- 100% want to give that person credit, but okay. <laughs> I, I don't think he said it just to make me get a job. I don't think he realized that about me. <laughs> um, <laughs> you are the only person that can decide what you can and cannot do. And I don't think it's about talent per se. I mean, there's a certain amount of talent that you have to have, but I think the rest of it is about your mindset, your determination and your ability to practice. And when you have those things in place and the determination and the ability, I think you have to have, you have to nurture the ability to spring back, to come back. And you have to have that as a musician. So you have that already inside you. And in some, to some extent, and if you nurture that ability to pick yourself back up um, and go and try again, learn what you can from it and go back to the learning, learn what you can from it, try again, try again, and don't give up. And I think, especially as double read players, we, we have that, you have to have that in order to even just play your instrument, you know? So there's a certain amount of just built in determination that we have. And I think realizing that you have that already and that you can use that to achieve your goals, that there is no stopping you. The only thing stopping you is you. I'm getting a little emotional because I also got super critical feedback as a young person like that. And, and I remember having an aha moment where I'm like, how do they know? Right. How do they know? You don't. And I tell you that has informed my teaching ever since, because I, having experienced it myself, I will never say to a student, you cannot do this. I will say, if you want to do this, I'm here to help you try to do this. 
we're going to do this together. And it may take longer, you know, I mean, I won't say this to them, but it may take longer than we expect or, or whatever. But if that's their dream, I'm there 100% to help them try to achieve it. I love that so much. Along those lines, we have a lot of student listeners. And one thing that we hear from them that they really value is hearing about the experiences of people who are now in a position to be on the other side of the screen and be a part of the hiring. And so I'd love to hear about, you know, kind of what you've learned about auditioning, being a part of a committee, and maybe what makes a candidate stand out to your ear or what's what's your deal breakers as a committee member (laughs) (laughs) but you you hit right on something that has been absolutely fascinating to me since I got the job so I've I've been here about six years and I I find auditions fascinating and I wish that I had had the experience of sitting on an audition committee long before I ever won an audition. And it's just one of the weird quirks of how we get a job that you don't get to sit on a committee until you've gotten the job. But let me tell you, it's eye-opening. <laughs> so um, let's see, a couple of things spring to mind. Um, the, the first one is, I, I can't tell you, it's such an emotional experience sitting on a committee. We, we often in St. Louis on, on audition committees, and you know, we, we just hired a, a second oboist. Um, and so that was an extremely emotional audition. Um, and we, we ate our feelings is what we say. So they get <laughs> backstage. <laughs> and every time we take a break, we go backstage and we'd say, oh, I have to eat my feelings. Because, because as I'm listening to oboists play, all I want is for them to do well. So we're not sitting there on the other side of the, of the screen going, oh, I hate this. I don't want to be here. I'm sitting there going, I want this oboe player to do well. I want to hear them succeed. There's, there's just this sense of wanting each candidate to be the one. We, we want you to be the one. So, so really, it's a very loving kind of uh, feeling that's coming from the other side of the screen. We're not sitting there wishing you to, to play badly or something awful like that. We want you to do well. So that's like the number one thing that I, I t- took away from that, that I wish that I'd known that the people on the other side of the screen simply want me to, to play great. And we want to facilitate how you play great. And then the other thing is, so there are, there are auditionees that get you know, the rhythm and the intonation and the tone, and they know how the excerpts go. And there's kind of no heart at all involved, or they don't necessarily know how the excerpts go, but they've been taught that they're this tempo. And then there's the auditionees that come in and their intonation's not great. And their, their rhythm isn't great, but they have all this heart. And then there's the people that's kind of land somewhere in the middle where their intonation and their rhythm is pretty good and their musicianship is pretty good. And those are the ones that tend to make it through. So if you can get to be the person that has the rhythm, the intonation and the tone and the musicianship within that time, within that framework, you're going to make it through to the next round. Um, 
And, and it is just really interesting. Like it is actually quite painful for me to vote no, especially for a, an oboist that, you know, that I hear there's just this amazing, beautiful musical soul inside. And I still have to vote no because the, the you know, the rhythm on, well, like for instance, tambo, for example, you know, some, some like the tempo between the first bar and the second bar is entirely different two tempos. And I have to say no to that. But that's, that's an easily fixable solution. There's, you know, that, the, that's just a metronome thing. So it's just been really interesting seeing how those two, those two categories kind of find a place in the middle. And a lot of times I'm, I'm sort of thinking, well, you know, these are okay. But I'm not thinking these are great. And every once in a while, there's a player that comes along that has all of those things all together on that day. Again, the stars align. <laughs> And those are the ones that that are really um, in the eye of the committee pretty much the whole way through the audition. I love the idea that it's quantifiable. Yeah. You evaluate and you say the objective measurements are here. Plus, I hear great musical ideas. Big check. No discussion. Yes, 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 yes. And it makes it seem so much more achievable. It is achievable. And I think that's part of the, the interesting thing sitting on the other side. I mean, you've achieved it, right? Because you're sitting on the other side. And so, you know, in fact, the first audition I ever, I ever sat on was for a uh, one year, maybe not the first one, but one of the, one of the first ones, it was for a one year oboe position in the orchestra. And I, I came home that day and I got my oboe out and I played through the list because I thought that maybe I had put together an absolutely impossible list <laughs> because I wasn't quite sure that I had asked for something that somehow sitting through there for the day, I, I doubted what I was asking for mm-hmm. because, because somehow nobody managed to get, to get, to check all the boxes that day. And that was, that was just really hard. And I, I, I tend to think it was, you know, a lot of times I'll think it's my fault. <laughs> and, and, and I wanted to know, am I asking for something that's unreasonable or not? And it turns out the answer was, was no, but it was just a really hard day for the oboists that came. In an ideal world, um, if you got to choose the repertoire that goes on your absolute dream concert, what would you program? <laughs> well, we've already talked about Barber Symphony One. Oh yeah, definitely. I, I just I love. Um, we mm-hmm. played it maybe two years ago with Slatkin conducting, and that was that was just a, a joy to get to play that solo. Rosen Cavalier. Oh my gosh, the Rosen Cavalier Suite. I love that piece. That's just right up there for me. But you know, I, I actually, there are times when I really enjoy something that's not the gigantic oboe solo. Our, our principal bassoonist, Andrew Cunio, one of the first weeks I was on the job, he said, you know, your job is really just to play the big oboe solo every week. <laughs> 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 and it's so true, you know? Um, so sometimes the, the concerts that are the most fun are the ones where, where I don't have something stressful to play. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, okay so the cop-out answer is really for me 
oftentimes it's kind of whatever favorite piece I've played last. Anything from Brahms Symphony to Rosenkavalier Rosen is still stuck in there. Pulcinella, I would love to get to play Pulcinella. I love it all. <laughs> we have to ask about reads. So could we hear a little bit about um, like your setup and the shape you use and all that nerdy stuff? Um, but I'd also be interested in knowing what your read making routine looks like as a working professional. Well, it, it looks like, wait, <laughs> I'm sitting at my desk right now. Um, <laughs> okay, so let's see, the nitty gritty. Right now I'm using an Inaletti gouge. Um, and I use 47 millimeter Pisoni brass tubes, a Gilbert one shape. I tie at 47 and 71 and a half millimeters long. Um, let's see. I like to tie reeds um, in advance. So I'll show you. Oh, this is my look at all those. Top. Yeah. How many are um, in there? 40, 50? Oh, 50, maybe even 60. Mm. Kind of. There's a lot in there right now. Um, plenty of time to wrap reeds, not so right. much time of playing them. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find that the reeds uh, change if you leave them as a blank for too long, or you find that as a blank, they're indestructible and you can scrape on them whenever? I actually find that the longer the blank sits around, the better it is. Ah. So for me, I like my blanks to sit around for maybe three months at least before <gasps> I play them. Oh, I want to try that. Do give it a try. Because I'm like, next day, let's go. <laughs> That's a very bassoon way to approach. Bassoonists let their blanks sit around. I've heard of forever. I actually learned it from David McGill. No kidding. Yeah, he said, just try it and see if you like it. And I tried it and I was like, I think I really like this. So, and the other thing I've recently tried doing is aging my cane. So I'll mm. order cane this year for playing in about two or three years. Mm. And I think I like that, that too. And that's still sort of a, a work in progress for me. But we'll, uh, so, we'll ask again in two or three years. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> So far, it seems, I, I think there's been a definite improvement. Um, and I think part of that is just, you know, in St. Louis, the weather is hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold. And I think that the aging of both the blanks and the cane gives you a little more stability. So the reeds just change a little bit less, which I find very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> the understatement of the century. <laughs> What's your favorite memory from being on stage? So Baron Boehm's final concert with the CSO on stage at Orchestra Hall, Molly Nine. And uh, he came around and shook everybody's hand Ugh. at the end. And I somehow, I mean, I, was, I think I was playing English horn on Molly Nine. And that was, that was just amazing. I just, I was just crying buckets because he, he had been just such a... Uh, supporter and mentor for me and um, yeah I'll never forget that yeah it's nice when you have other voices like Baron Boyne saying that you're awesome <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that must <laughs> be really cool. Helps those first voices quiet <laughs> I down. I don't know that he ever said that to me, but he certainly was very encouraging, and he he was always paying attention to what I was doing. Um, so sitting in the second oboe chair, I mean, that's kind of an amazing thing. And so I think that's, you know, Eugene, I played a lot with Eugene Isakoff there. And Eugene used to call me the best first second oboist he ever had, which, <laughs> <laughs> which was basically like, I think, you know, I was always interested again in what was happening in the harmony and, and whatnot. And I think, you know, maybe that was just something that came from, from Berenborn. Other great moments. Oh gosh, you know, Hytink has to have been one of the favorite conductors I've ever worked with. And we did Mahler six with him at the proms. And in fact, it's on YouTube. You can search Chicago Symphony Hytink Mahler six. He, he has a way of conducting that is just so minimal and yet so clear. And he's such a gentleman and, and he could do the smallest thing and the orchestra would just react to that. And yeah, that was another amazing one. The world of performing is unpredictable and all sorts of things can happen. Do you have a story of a funny moment or something embarrassing or, uh, yeah, like a kind of a counterpart to these glorious memories? Anything <laughs> funny to share? Yeah, sure. Um, Oh gosh, I remember it was when I was still in college, but uh, I had a reed crack down the middle in the middle of some solo performance. Um, <laughs> and and another another memory with Eugene, um, I forgot what piece we were playing, but actually it might have been Rosenkavalier. Um, and his A flat key started coming off of the oboe. So it was like loose and the screw was coming out and he just like handed me his oboe took my oboe and he was like see if you can fix that <laughs> so it's like in the middle of a performance and I've got his oboe and I'm like okay you're like let me get my screwdriver <laughs> so, so I just happened to have a plaque on my stand and so I just I remember like trying to get the screw oh, in there and then so taking smart. the plaque and turning it and then you know fixed it and handed it over and we were off <laughs> How wow. long was it? What, how many like minutes? Are we talking minutes? Seconds? No, no, it was, it was, it was the whole thing maybe took a minute. It was wow. pretty fast, Yeah, <laughs> but it felt like five minutes. Oh, I bet it felt like five days. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my favorite question to end with is what is your advice for young musicians who aspire to have a career like yours? Don't give up. Keep keep learning. Don't give up. Keep dreaming. Feed your soul because you have to love what you do along with the trying to achieve. Remember to love it. That's wonderful. Elena Dirks, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on Double Read Dish. This has been a fantastic conversation. I can't wait to share it with our listeners. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight. <laughs> Thank you much for joining us for this episode. 
Uh, we hope you enjoyed that awesome interview with Yelena Dirks. Don't forget to follow us on social media and subscribe on iTunes, where we'd love if you leave us a rating and review. Otherwise, you can find us anywhere you get your podcast. Galit, who do we have coming up on the next episode? We had a wonderful conversation with Gabriel Beavers, Associate Professor of Bassoon at the University of Miami Frost School of Music. Jackie, we got to end this nerd parade. Go make reads.